0: Once again, to the Franco Observer Podcast, I am your host, Jason Rudy, from Desert Visions Productions. Hello, buddies. Hello, fellow Franco fans. This is Episode 9, and today's subject is Women Behind Bars. This is the 69th film that Jess Franco directed in his filmography, and there's no 69 position in this film, so not that I remember. Um, uh, Let's see. Let me go back to myself. Um, You know, me, Sacramento, California-based filmmaker, independent underground filmmaker. I've done uh, about 12 films, features and shorts, and a bunch of other short films I don't count, and music videos and... uh, Written a bunch of scripts, and i um, artist and a photographer. I've put out two photography books of my work, and um, yeah, I've done hundreds of photo shoots and all that good stuff. But yeah, check me out at Mondo Visions and Desperate Visions Productions for the film site, and Mondo Visions um, photography on the photography side. So back to Jess Franco, the reason why you're here. Once again, this is episode nine. And this is the 69th film that Jess Franco did. Uh, it is... A Belgium, France... And possibly Italian production. Uh... Once again, this is the, uh... Film that is... Part of the... No, it's not. See? See, here's the thing. Um... I went into it thinking this was a Dietrich film, but this is not a Dietrich film. And once, after I go through the credits and the titles and all that, we'll go through the history. Um, The last episode, episode eight, which was Barbed Wire Dolls, we went into the backstory of Franco after he had just made Barbed Wire Dolls. He tried to do a side deal where he got uh tried to do the italian distribution rights to two different companies even though he wasn't the producer of the film and he tried to do a side deal away from dietrich so in this one the controversy was did he do this film as a side film on dietrich's money or was it something he did as a side on his own dime so we'll go over that and i'll read uh different paragraphs from The Flowers of Perversion uh, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco Volume 2 book by Stephen Thrower which you can find on Amazon.com <clears throat> uh, This film is uh, okay, once again Belgian, France and possible Italian production 1975 uh, The original theatrical title uh, in the country of origin in the French title is Prison des Femmes The Belgium-French language title is La Flagie de la Cellie 69, The flagellin Women of Cell 69. That's interesting, too, because this is the 69th film that Jess Franco did, and they're doing the 69 uh, number for that one, even though it's something different. Um, The Dutch one is The flagellated Women of Cell 69 as well, Uh, but that's uh, D. Gersel de Verumden van Cell 69, Belgium Dutch language one. Uh, alternative titles for this, the French alternative uh, theatrical and the French video title is Diamonds for Hell, which is cool because the, um, the plot of this is a, a heist for stolen diamonds and they're hidden. They're trying to find out where these diamonds are hidden. So yeah, Diamonds for Hell. Uh, the Italian theatrical one is a female jailer in a woman's prison. Secondina in un carcer femminile. The Canadian theatrical is punishment cell. del uh, punition. French video is uh, SM prison for women. Prison uh also french video the whip le fontu both languages on the same cover on screen video title reads the whip le font uh, F- visa to die is also a french retitling uh the german's video is women's prison 2. um and let's see what else uh Frau von 2, okay, and then on the DVD it's Frau von 3 and German vid- DVD alternate title Girls Prison 3, Women's Prison 3, Girls Prison 3, uh, Hell Diamonds, uh your Scene, the online export poster is, has it as that, uh, the shooting title for this is Punition Cell and um, let's see, unconfirmed titles, La Vista Folse. And production companies Brooks, BRUX, International Pictures, it was Brussels. Um, Eurocene is Paris. Uh, the BBOS company, Rome, named on the Eurocine Pressbook, uh, Elite Films, named on the Photo Fotista. Uh, the theatrical distribution from this is Les Films de Dragon from Belgium, the Dragon Films. Uh, Timeline um, This is shot circa September 75. And um, going back and looking at Barbed Wire Dolls, the film he shot right before this, that was shot August 18th through the 30th, and then on sets in Zurich in September, and then he shot Women Behind Bars around September, so, like, immediately following that last film. Uh, So, yes, September circa... Circa September 1975. Um, let's see what else we got. Uh, The Italian, it came out in Italy in February of 77. So, about, uh, a year and five months later, it premiered in Italy in February of 77, February 3rd. Then it played Naples in February 12th of 77. And then Rome, it played in August 4th of 77. Uh, unknown theatrical running time for this. um... There's different versions that you'll learn on this as well. Uh, The UK Go Video Pal VHS version was 78 minutes, 12 seconds. The USA Blue Underground DVD, which was the one I watched, uh, is 80 minutes, 31 seconds. Uh, The director on this, of course, is Jess Franco, but he's billed as Rick DeConnick. D-E-C-O-N-N-I-N-K. Rick Diconek. Writer, G.S. Franco, as R. Marceganak. Director of Photography is Jess Franco. So yeah, he's the director, the writer, and the director of photography. Music, Daniel J. White. Assistant Director, Nicole Guttard. Production Manager, Gerald Cazell, as Gerald Kessel. Uh, unit Manager, is uh, Denise Torre. Still Photographer, Ramon Ardid. who that is, uh, Lena Romay's husband at the time, and he's in the last two films. Uh, let's see, who else do we have director? Okay. Cast in this uh, Lena Romay plays Shirley Fields, Perry Mendoza's lover. Uh, Roger Darton plays Milton Warren, the insurance company investigator and the English narrator. He's also. Okay, so Lena Romay was in the last two films. Uh, Roger Darton, who I said was the insurance company investigator, he's the governor in the last film, uh, Barbed Wire Dolls. Uh, Ronald Weiss, Colonel Carlos de Brice. he's the warden. He's also from uh, Barbed Wire Dolls. Uh, Martine Steedle, who's one of my favorites. She is also from the last two films. Um, uh, yeah, from, uh, I, I'm sorry, just from uh, Barbed Wire Dolls in this. Um, yeah, sorry. So anyway, uh, yeah, so she's from the last two films, and she's in this, or she, Barbed Wire Dolls in this one. Uh, Martine, she's a prisoner who's sleeping with Debris. She's sleeping with the uh, the uh, warden. Uh, G- Jess Franco, Jesus Franco, plays Bill, Milton Warren's associate. Um, Ramon Ardid plays, uh, role number one, he plays Perry Mendoza, Shirley's lover. And then pr- role number two, he plays a guard bringing new arrivals to Debris. So. And that's uh, Lena Romay's husband at the time that they were making this film. Uh, and he was in the last film as well. He's in Bardware Dolls um, let's see, Dennis Torre, uh, he's role number one, he's the second masked gangster, role number two, he's the chief guard of the penitentiary wearing the cowboy hat, okay, cool, so, yeah, he's, he's actually one of the masked gangsters in the beginning, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that, so yeah, he has two roles, that's liberty. this movie is shot very economical and very on the fly, so a lot of these people, have two roles if they're wearing a mask or something or, or if their face is not shown. And, they sh- and uh, Ramon Ardid, his character, his face is obscured a few times, so it makes sense. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, and then Nathalia Campbell is also in it. She's credited on the Italian print. Um, okay. And uh, we got here... Uh, okay, so... Um, yeah, like the versions I talked about, uh, I watched the Blue Underground DVD of that. Um, film notes. I'm going to kind of skip the Amazon review on this and go over the film notes because the subtext on this one is basically um, the kind of the other shifty thing that... It matters on your point of view, but my point of view is a little bit not the best move that he did. So basically, like I said before, he tried to do the Italian distribution rights right after filming of Barbed Wire Dolls. And then he went ahead and made this movie with a lot of the same actors from Barbed Wire Dolls, like five or six people, and uh, about 10 miles, 13 miles, something like that, up the road. And um, used the same house from the, or the mansion from the governor's mansion in Barbed Wire Dolls and uses it in this, and then uses it in the next film, Downtown. And that was on uh, um, Dietrich's thing. But anyway, I'm going to go to now the production notes from uh, the Flowers of Perversion book and tell you about uh, kind of the production on this. Production notes. The film, best known as Women Behind Bars, began life as a script treatment called Prison Prison de Femmes before being renamed Punition Cell during shooting. It was filmed chiefly in Belleau-sur-Mer, 13 miles up the coast from Antibes, where Barbed Wire Dolls was shot, and it shared a quintet of cast members from that film. As the title suggests, it also features a women's prison setting. It is not a significant film artistically, but if you peer behind the scenes, it's by far the most contentious of the period. The meat of the matter is an allegation made in 1992 by producer Irwin C. Dietrich that Frego had squirreled away money intended for barbed wire dolls to make Women Behind Bars, which he then sold to a different company. To be clear before we go any further, the two films were not shot simultaneously. They do not share identical footage, and their basic scenarios are quite different. The allegations are not one of plagiarism. Dietrich was saying that two films were made with his money, only one of which was given to him. If this is true, then despite having recently minted a potentially lucrative multi film deal with Dietrich. Franco was recklessly exploring his newfound backer Oh sorry, start over. Franco was recklessly exploiting his newfound backer by squeezing two just Franco Paydays from one Erwin Dietrich budget. Such trickery presents problems for the sympathetic observer. Franco always denied any wrongdoing, though not always convincingly. If he was being economical with the truth, he had very good reason. Future producers might think twice if he openly admitted filming scenes on a one-for-you, one-for-me basis. On the other hand, such stories are part of the Franco mythos. Numerous Numerous collaborators have referred to his habit of secretly shooting more than one project at the same time, and these stories tickle the funny bones of his fans, including me. There's a buccaneering rogueness to his modus operandi, And Franco's personal charm meant that even when certain actors figured out what was going on, they were having too much fun working with him to object. Nevertheless, from a strictly ethical point of view, Franco was spending someone else's money to make films he could sell for his own benefits. So how do you justify the practice to himself? The author of this book asked Antonio Mayans, with whom Franco worked throughout the 1980s, as he put it this way, "'You pay just to make you a film.' You give him the money, and he gives you a film. The film makes money, and that's that. So what if he shot some scenes for another film, as long as he delivers the one he promised? A producer might counter with some validity. It has to be said that when you give someone £30,000 to make a film, you want £30,000 worth of production value for your money. The way Franco worked, he would spend maybe two-thirds of the available budget of the backer's film, working fast and filming loose, and then using the remaining money to start another. He would consider the second film his property. He could then offer it to a different producer, either as a finished work or as a part-finished film, for which top-up money was needed. Sometimes, if the original investor was lucky, Franco would offer him both films, asking for more money to finish the second. But, in some cases, it seemed he shot two movies for one budget and sold the second one elsewhere, Even in the cutthroat world of exploitation cinema, this could have been led to serious legal trouble if word had got around. Um, So, basically, uh, Dietrich also had talked about how he thought Franco had shot during the same time. And you could tell that there's different locations and and different actors and the stories are different. So that, that doesn't work on that part. There is one serious piece of evidence contradicting this amount, but before we examine it, let's consider Dietrich's claim that the same sets were used in both films. This was definitely not the case in the prison scenes. The walls, the cell doors, and the exterior corridors are completely different. The only shared location is is a luxurious chateau in Nice. In barbed wire dolls, it serves as the governor's private residence. In women behind bars, it's Colonel Debris' reception hall. In Women Behind Bars, these shots total roughly two and a half minutes, and they were evidently collected at the same time as the ones in Barbed Wire Dolls. The same vase of roses can be seen in both films, and the condition of the blooms is identical. Frankel must have grabbed these shots for Women Behind Bars while shooting Barbed Wire Dolls, almost certainly on the same afternoon. He also picked up a scene featuring Monica swim at the same location which ended up in his next film, Downtown. Up to his old tricks again, so he was now juggling at least three proper di- projects simultaneously. So Franco really did shoot Women Behind Bars with money intended for barbed wire dolls. Any visible overlap between the two productions is limited to the Nice Chateau footage. As far as the shared cast, while it's true that both films star Lena Romay, Roger Darton, Ronald Weiss, Martine Steedle, and Ramon Ardide, two of these, Ramon and Ardide, were Franco regulars who appeared in a multitude of his films between 73 and 75. Steedle and Vice are the two to, to watch. Residents of the city of D'Azur, they appear to have thrown themselves with gusto into Franco's plans, appearing in all the films he made during his month-long sojourn in the region. Okay, so there was that. So, what did Franco say? In a documentary on the Blue Underground DVD of Women Behind Bars, he claimed Someone told Dietrich when they saw Women Behind Bars that I made the film with the trims from Barbed Wire dolls. I have a reputation of being a magician because with the twins front with because with the trims from barbed wire dolls, it was impossible to do anything but just a very short film of two minutes. They gave they got this idea because the film was made in principle in the same places. In principle with the same actors. No, no, no. No one. No, no, no. Comes from the same film. I didn't need to show any proof. It was very close. But, anyways, Barbed Wire Dolls was made in scope. Technoscope. Women Behind Bars was made in panoramic screen. Not with the system of scope so it's quite impossible to do the same things together if you are very rich, but not in my case. Here we see Franco adapting a straw man argument to divert from the real accusation. He could say in all honesty that he did not use trims from barbed wire dolls and women behind bars, but that's not what is being alleged. His protest about the impossibility of cutting footage from one film into the other because of the different aspect ratios would be a fine rebuttal if anyone were suggesting it. But they aren't. The allegations concern misuse of funds, not misuse of footage. Franco goes on to suggest that that disgruntled ex-colleagues were the source of the misleading information which so upset Dietrich. I realized that some people, I know who they were, some guys from the production who didn't like me so much because I didn't like them so much. They decided to try to fuck me up, which they didn't do because Dietrich said all those things, but then he was asking me to make more films. The moment that barbed wire dolls opened, he was happy because he made his fortune with this film. This is incorrect. Dietrich didn't, Dietrich didn't make his fortune from Franco's film, but he was considerably but he <clears throat> he was already considerably wealthy from his own films. And as we shall see, events in the last two months of 1975 suggest a different, very explanation for Dietrich continuing to work with Franco. The most compelling evidence to suggest that Franco shot women behind bars with Erwin Dietrich's money is a letter dated August 13th of 1976, which Franco wrote to Enrico Colombo at at Telecolor. In it, here just Colombo, to allow Dietrich access to the negative of women behind bars, a.k.a. Punition Cell, with a view to striking release prints. My dear friend, as you well know, look at our agreements... With and also, if you like, my contracts with Miss Hudson as BOS Company. The film Punition Cell and Women Behind Bars have been largely funded by Elite Films. Now they want to start working immediately on these movies in their territories Switzerland, Germany, Austria. That is to say, the first of the films. I convinced the gentlemen at Elite Film to make copies at your place despite their bad experiences with other Italian laboratories. I beg you not to make difficulties because, as you know, they are perfectly entitled and they will only order about 20 copies so you know how serious they are. The first thing to note here is the open admission by Franco that Women Behind Bars was funded by elite in contradiction of the September 1975 letter which he signed over the rights to Dietrich after completion. Dietrich must have asked Franco to persuade Tendacolor to give him access to the negative. This letter sees Franco assisting to Dietrich's mission to gain legal control of women behind bars, as is. I would have thought a strong indication that Franco admitted, at least in private to Dietrich, that he had used Dietrich's money to make it. Women Behind Bars was at some point bought by Eurocene with a view to releasing it in France and possibly the UK. A French-language print and an English-language print both exist, bearing Eurocene's credits and they both came out on video in their respective countries in the early 80s. However, despite combing through years of French documentations, I've been unable to find evidence that it ever played theatrically in France under any a multitude of variant titles. The only European country where Eurasine succeeded in releasing the film theatrically appears to have been Belgium, where it played as La Flairise de Cécile 69, under the similarity to the title given the Canadian release. I suspect that this is because Dietrich managed to put a stop to Yersin's plans some time after they spent money on striking one or more prints, dubbing the English and French dialogue tracks. Erwin Dietrich clearly wanted Franco safely under contract as his house director, as it seemed he was willing to go to bat to extradite him from the tangle of self-made problems. None of this could be worth Dietrich's trouble, however, if word got around that Franco was acting dishonestly with his producer's funds. Future business dealings would be com- compromised if potential investors could point to evidence of financial impropriety to the end of his days. Frank would strenu- strenuously deny these allegations he would often deliberately he would he would often deliberately misunderstand what was being suggested, claiming it was absurd to think a man could make two films simultaneously. Anyone who suggested such a thing would know nothing about making movies. This, however, was another straw man tactic. No one was suggesting that two full-fledged productions were being juggled simultaneously. Instead, the claim was that while shooting one film, Franco would shoot scenes for later use in a film yet to be started. In the text of this book, I have referred to to the Seripus films as back-pocket productions, projects born at a fleeting impulse or the canny awareness that a setup could yield an extra take to be squirreled away for future use. As for his referral, to admit anything of the sort, he must have been born in Catholic Spain, but just Franco would have never been seen dead in a confessional booth. Okay. Franco on screen. Franco plays a violent gangster working for a rival crime outfit, a role similar to the one he plays in Midnight Party and The Slaves. Uh, Other versions. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up here. Other versions. The version released on French video as Le Font includes 11.5 minutes of extra footage, expanding the roles of the fleeting glimpsed bandits who rob a boat in the pre-credit sequence. The new material comes in four sections: a discussion between two male gang members and Cora, their mole, at the apartment hideout, a further discussion between the two men at the same location where they are joined by a vivacious blonde, a scene in which the blonde visits the prison and offers sexual favors to the governor played as per the original by ron weiss and a scene between cora and the blonde in which cora packs her bags and leaves the hideout several things pique one's curiosity about these additions firstly they were mostly expository underlining the fact that shirley double crossed the gang who pulled off the robbery only the prison scene offers any exploitable imagery namely the the blonde woman stripping to her underwear it seemed odd for a distributor to have asked for such genuinely banal material to be added. Secondly, it's intriguing that Ronald Weiss turns up in one of the additional scenes. Weiss was a theater actor working in Nice who fell in with Franco in 1975. He appeared in all the films Franco made in the south of France that year. He then turned up in Un Cage d'Or, which Yves boss Maurice Lasour directed with assistance from Franco. It's the Golden Cage. Um, Weiss's name also has been attached by various sources to Eurocene Productions, Elsa Fraulein SS from 1977, and Special Train for Hitler 1977. However, I have combed through both films and could see no sign of him. Given that no one who credits Weiss for these films can specify what character he's supposed to be playing, I personally don't believe he was ever in them, which means that apart from a single obscure Franco-Sex film, Nelly, Pal, ou 1976. Weiss only worked with Franco. This, plus the expository nature of additional scenes, makes me wonder whether Franco shot the new material at someone's behest to clarify the film's haphazard plotting. Technically and stylistically, the new scenes are as banal as their subject matter, so if they really, do, so if they really were shot by Franco, he didn't put very much into them, though, to be fair, the first of the additions does at least try to match... The original material, one of the robbers, puts on a white plastic face mask, a link to the opening robbery, in which the thieves wear similar masks. However, the mask is a different shape, so we could be sure that this wasn't filmed during the original shooting period. According to the Manacoa files, a variant edit exists which replaces the punishment cell beatings with material shot by persons unknown. All right, so that is uh, the women behind bars the uh some of the information on that um like i always give the uh, in the upcoming review i talk about what i thought about the film and um all that it's it's a little slow in the beginning um there's certain things that are kind of odd about it um one thing that he had wrote in the review that um i thought was kind of interesting one thing i kind of noticed was that um says, uh, Bearing in mind the film's questionable production history, it's tempting to say the recent events in the life of Jess Franco were making their way subconsciously into his movies. But while the film is more complicated than you might expect from its reputation as a quick knockoff, or remains fairly tedious, despite being partially set in a women's prison, there's little of the crude sec- sadosexual griminess which made barbed wire dolls so compelling. Women Behind Bars does restage some aspects of dolls, but by introspection, Interspersing them with a convoluted plot involving crooked insurance investigators, stolen diamonds, and sundry double-crossing, which is almost like basically like he's saying subconsciously, like the diamonds are the film, and he's double-crossing uh, Dietrich by making the film, and he's trying to get the film out without being discovered. Very interesting. I'd never thought about that. That's totally cool. Uh, Franco adds enough more material. Franco adds more than enough new material to give the film its own identity. It's more than just the material itself is weak and uninvolving. What little fun there is to be had comes from Franco's bare-faced cheek in in convening a prison drama in which looks suspiciously like an outdoor sports and leisure club. The geography of the prison is impossible to believe. Yeah, that's why I noticed this prison is the most cheapest, uh, total shanty, you know, uh, just fake prison it is. like, but, but it's cool because it gives you hope that you can build a prison out of nothing. So this prison is the geography of the prison is impossible to believe. A concrete underpass stands in for the usual labyrinth of locked gates. The canteen resembles a swimming pool cafe. The governor lives in a palatial villa apparently inside the prison grounds while the inmates bemoan their fate while lounging next to a chain link fences through which leafy car parks and residential apartments can be seen. These flagrant municipal settings do at least give the film a touch of the absurd, as if, like the party guests in Louis Bonnell's The Exterminating Angel, the prisoners are somehow trapped in a prison of their own imagining, rather than the real thing.
1: L'histoire d'un hold sensationnel, aux conséquences tragiques, un film violent, actuel. Arrêtez, il est dans la voiture. Quant à vous, colonel de Briès, retournez dans votre putain de prison. Bienvenue dans cette prison, mademoiselle. Sortez immédiatement, allons. Non, toi, tu restes ici. Allez, viens, toi. Bonne chance, ma vieille. Tu vas me dire où sont cachés les diamants et hors vitesse. Sinon, je te le crève. Alors, paf ah, ah, Je ne sais rien Vous voyez, ah, Être rafraîchi à la mémoire Je ne sais rien Cellule de punition. La vie dans une prison de femmes. Les disputes entre les prisonnières entraînent la répression, la torture. De punition sadique ou de violence, les prisonnières cèdent au désir vicieux du directeur de la prison. Alors, tu décides à cracher le morceau Hein Lina Romet et Ronald Weiss sont les protagonistes de cette histoire vraie. Jour. <rire> Seigneur, bénissez notre repas. Une fois que plus, notre nous te remercions de nous avoir accordé notre pain quotidien. Amen. 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 Donne-moi ce papier. Donne-le-moi tout de suite, ou tu le regretteras. Garde, emmenez-la en cellule de punition. Roger Darton et Martin Stedil vous feront vivre l'histoire d'une cellule de punition. Sensationnel. Je te veux. Tu l'as dit ça à toutes. Salut.
0: That was the Italian trailer for Women Behind Bars. Hello and welcome again to the Franco Observer. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento based filmmaker of the Sacramento based Desperate Visions Productions film company. We make uh, low budget exploitation, drive in style films that are shown theatrically on video and streaming services. I'm here once again with my co host, uh, friend, and fellow actor, and a few of my Films, uh, Mr. Eric Whitwell. Hello. Um, For this, episode 9 of the Franco Observer, we watched Women Behind Bars, which is the uh, American release title. Uh, This was made pretty quickly after Barbed Wire Dolls, which was the episode we did previously. Um, Before I talk about any of the films and such... Uh, I want to say that I erroneously mistaken this for a uh, Irwin C. Dietrich production. Um, upon researching, I always try to research the film before the podcast to learn about it and to see about it. And it, I should have known better because this is on through Blue Underground and not part of the Dietrich Collection uh, Full Moon DVD set or of the Ascot Elite ones. So that should have... Uh, flagged me to it right away but yeah Franco made this after he did Barbed Wire Dolls for Dietrich but this was with D- with money he made from Dietrich but this is not a Dietrich production um, but uh, so yeah this was uh, another film with just Franco and Lena Romay uh, I'm gonna go ahead and read the synopsis on this one uh, from the Flowers of Perversion book it's actually quite short and I should kind of tell you The running theme that we're having with this one. (laughs) Okay, synopsis for Women Behind Bars. In the wake of a successful diamond heist, Shirley Field shoots dead the man responsible, her criminal fiancé, Perry Mendoza. Then coolly turns herself into the police, claiming she committed the murder because Mendoza was cheating on her. While locked away in a sinister seaside prison, Field attracts the attention of sundry nudie (laughs) <laughs> Field attracts the attention of sundry near do Keen to discover the whereabouts of the stolen diamonds Which have not been found Does Shirley know more than she's letting on? Among those trying to crack her resolve And glean the information are the prison governor Colonel DeBreeze Resident prison snitch Martine A rival crime fighter called Bill And the narrator, insurance executive Milton Warren Whose role is kept unexplained until the finale. Um, this film has from has quite a few of the same actors from the last film that we watched. Uh, Lena O'Maey is in it again. Uh, Roger Darton is in it. He was the governor in the last one, and he's the insurance investigator in this one. Um, Ronald Weiss, he's a prison guard in the last one, and he's the warden in this one. Uh, Martine Steedel, my favorite, she's in this again. She's a prisoner as well. Jess Franco's in it again, of course. And uh, I want to say, let's see. I'm trying to see who played the woman. Uh, Ramon Ardid. Yeah, Ramon Ardid's the same in it. Um, Denise Torrey's different. Nathia Chappelle. Okay. So, yeah. I was wondering if one of the guards was the same, but I'm not sure if uh, the lady that played Isabella was in this one or not. We're trying to decide if the red-headed guard was her or if it was somebody different. But um, So, yeah, I don't know. Um, he made this really fast. He shot it, it said, in September. Uh, it wasn't... Um, I don't know. Actually, before I go into the details, I'm going to throw this over to Eric and ask him what did he think about the film and, and his feel of the film that we watched.
2: Uh, uh, it, it started off really promising. Like It started off, I thought, wow, this is going to be a really cool heist movie and you know and twists and turns and and then it just kind of stopped and so yeah I don't know I don't know it it wasn't one of my favorites for sure Um, but yeah it started off really promising started off really promising
0: yeah it looks like it was shot in 75 and not distributed until 77 so that should tell you Um, in the opening uh, in the introduction that's I always record so go behind the curtain basically we always kind of read about the film first and then we'll watch the film and then we'll do a a review portion of the film and then I'll go back and I'll research more and then I'll do the opening uh, introduction and with all the setups and go through that so for this one I kind of went and read behind the scenes on this and I'll give a little more information on that in the opening of the situation with Dietrich and Franco for this but uh, yeah basically in a nutshell Franco ended up Uh, taking some of the money he made from barbed wire dolls, taking about five of the same cast members from that film, shooting a little side project he had about 10 miles away from the original location where everybody was. And we counted about maybe five or six locations, basically a hotel room, the same chateau with the tunnel as out front, uh, outdoor work yard, a room where three women sleep and the, and some fake bars in front. And then maybe, uh, like one or two other and then the uh, the um, warden's house or the colonel's house whatever it was and then one other place and it was like really really minimal and it looked like they shot it like they said maybe over two weeks maybe six shooting days seven shooting days I would guess probably the most you know seemed very minimal Um, I liked it it was fun Um, like he was saying like the first 20 minutes were really good I thought and then it kind of like slows down and um, the the prison scenes really don't do a lot. Um, but as a filmmaker, I was really intrigued by seeing the minimalist of where they're at. And like the outdoor stuff was just like a chain link fence. That was like an apartment complex area or something <laughs> it could have been. And, and getting in and out of the prison was so easy. It was like just a gate with a one key to go in and out and stuff. So it's like if you watch that as a student filmmaker or as a first-time filmmaker or a low-budget, no-budget filmmaker – there's a lot of cool ideas to be gleaned from that film to see how he went in and shot with existing locations and how you could take that and adapt it to your film as well and, and kind of shoot it with a bare-bones story. Um, visually, the film, there's a couple of really good shots. Uh, I like the electrocution sequences with Lena on this one. Instead of using a, a uh, spring bed, he used kind of her sitting in a chair with a tube and these two wires taped to the inside of her thighs. That's taped like a little electronic switchboard. It's very cheap looking, very economical, but it looks like it could work and it's passable. And uh, that was another idea that I got off that that I thought was a really cool, simple idea that could be used really well by um, low-budget filmmakers. And uh, you could take that same effect and spend $10,000 on it or do what they did and make it look really cheap and it still works um, but uh, so yeah what did you think about like the stuff with Lena
2: well it's uh, oh man it's there were some okay there was there were some cool shots there were some cool shots um, the story I didn't quite I mean I, I understand it but um, I think the the sex scene between Martine and Lena um I like the way that was shot. Like he kept a, uh, he kept a motion with the camera. It wasn't, st- wasn't still, it wasn't like a uh, focused on one area at one all the time. It was just very, a m- lot of movement in it. And so I like that aspect of it. Um, the tunnel scenes are always a great shot. Like the, with the shadows and, uh, the silhouettes, um, yeah, there was there were some good parts to it. There were some definitely good parts to
0: it. Uh, I thought Lena, as an actress, was really good in this. She was very playful. Um, yeah. Compared to the last film, where she was kind of a victim in this, she was kind of very conniving and, and very evil, and she was very cold, and she knew what she was doing, and she was in charge. And even when you thought that she was being played, she was playing the person that was playing her. Yeah, She's very smart. Um, she's very sexy in this she looked really good yeah very playful there's a scene where she's coming on to the uh, prison guard and, or the prison warden she kind of like moves her tongue left and right <laughs> kind of wags her yeah. tongue at him very very sexily and she's just so cute and so sexy and then um, Martine Steedles in this and uh, it's cool looking her up she only did about seven films five of them that were Franco for Franco over like the span of two years and then like there's no other credits for on IMDb or whatever. So I'm going to look her up and see whatever became of her or if she got married and left or passed away or just got out of the business or, or what. But, yeah, she's very striking in this. Um, she's nude in it a lot, uh, which there's no argument for me on that. No. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, yeah, it's great. That's yeah. A great.
0: Yeah, and she uh, she's totally uh, unshaved, so you see her in all of her Glory on the bed. And there's a couple cool shots where she's naked in bed. Lena's naked in bed, and the two other gals are naked in bed, including the cool gal with the sunglasses and the fucking yeah um, racing jacket again. So he got the racing jacket in. Um,
2: it, it's funny. It like must have been like a really warm prison because although they yeah. sleep on top of the covers nude.
0: Yeah, there's a scene yeah. where she go where <laughs> Lena's. Where it's funny because also too in the last film they're all they're all wearing blue smocks and in this they're wearing like a dark. Or like a light black or a dark blue black kind of like artist smock kind of, and there's like I was looking at that too, going, okay, they're just wearing this smock, no one to wear no bra. The costume budge on this is really cheap because that's all they wear is these smocks, they're yeah like no other fatigues or nothing you know, in the jail um this was the 69th film that Jess Franco shot as a director for his filmography uh it was yeah shot in nineteen seventy five was released in nineteen seventy seven um it looked like it just played uh, in Italy and Naples, and then Rome. Uh, that's really about all it played, and then it played in video in UK and the United States. Um, yeah, this was
2: definitely Lena's film. This was definitely like she she carried this film. Like she was definitely this was her film.
0: Yeah, and and uh, Franco's in it as a different character in this one compared to her husband. Uh, He's like a – I guess he's a crime fighter, but I thought he was like uh, in on the jewels as well. But um, So, yeah, um, Lena plays a character named Shirley Fields. Right off the bat, I was kind of laughing because it sounds like uh, Sally Fields, and Sally Fields was really popular around that time. Uh, I don't know if they came up with that. Um, it starts with the opening narration from the insurance salesman, uh, or the insurance investigator, who was the sleazy governor in the last film and right off the bat we see him we started laughing because it's like oh this guy's in it again okay who else is in it we started trying to see how many of his um um how many of his actors for the last film were in this um they do a heist of a diamond uh of a, a chinese liner which is really cool they come in like wearing these white masks and they pull in real fast jump in the boat take the box jump in the car and he filmed it like in one take you could tell and it was done really well. Uh, Really cool boats they gone in and out and take off and and uh there's some nice uh nice that whole sequence is really good like the first 10 15 minutes it, it it moves along pretty good it's like a heist film um really good narration kind of starts like a like a 60s kind of a crime film you know um and then I' noticed too like the like i said before there's the the jail fence outside it's like a chain link fence so a, anybody could jump it and they have like two guards in the whole prison so the prison's very very minimal um when lena first shows up to the prison and goes outside and talks to the other girls there's a nice dialogue scene with uh her and martine uh martine is actually self-titled her character is um, martine as well which I, <laughs> I thought was funny and you learn that she works for the for the warden and she's uh in on the deal and she's really not what she seems, but she tries to be friendly in the beginning. Sally Fields, there's uh, a Shirley Fields character to try to find out where the diamonds are. If she has any information on it, but, uh, the first scene where she beats her in the, in the courtyard and they share a cigarette and have dialogue and stuff is a nice scene. It's uh shot really well. It's a, it's a good dialogue scene. It's, it's, it's believable and it's a nice setting. It's, uh, probably for me the highlight of the film it's it's just a good scene in a, in a standard film um let's see um franco uh yeah he's he's almost wearing the same shirt that he's wearing in in uh barbed wire dolls i'm not sure the print looks similar but he's wearing on this like a like a blue uh leisure suit like a jacket and, and pants in this um there's uh no dance scene in this. Another scene that Phil has that doesn't have a dancing scene. <laughs> yeah. But there is the shock scene. There's a scene where uh, Maria's whipped, and it's, I don't know. To me, it doesn't really make sense to have her whipped, but it's because she kind of was knew something, but she didn't say, so they just had an excuse to have her naked, chained up, and the guard whipping her. Um Eric Falk is not in this but the guy that plays his role you could tell if he was in it he would have played this main guy that wears this kind of weird cowboy hat and carries a gun he looks kind of like a really poor man's Quentin Tarantino yeah in this and uh, he's the one whipping her and he's just kind of just
2: and he's shirtless too when he's whipping her that's true I forgot about that yeah he decided to take his shirt off when he whips her
0: (laughs) and uh, yeah he doesn't really change his expression he just kind of like the whole film he just has this one look and he just carries that same yeah. through the whole thing you know um let's see uh yeah the I thought the shock scene of Lena was really cool it was a cheap cool idea um in this um I don't know I mean this is gonna be a short review because this didn't really knock my socks off Eric really wasn't impressed either I don't think that much um but I, I mean it's it's not garbage it's definitely cool to watch uh for Franco completists. of course you want to get it to add your collection which I I, I did as well um you know, I mean, Lena does a good job. Our good in it. Everybody acts really well. Um, there's just not a lot to it. You could tell it's just, it's kind of a bare bones idea. And it's, there's about 20 minutes in it that could have been changed and fixed. That would have been a better film. Like a, if they would have, if they would have pumped the middle up a little better and maybe, I don't know, changed a few of the scenes in the middle, I think it would be a lot better film. I mean, yeah. what do you think? or what? Yeah,
2: definitely. It's just kind of a, once she got to prison, it just kind of stalled you know just a just a bunch of different you know scenes of them naked you yeah. know which is which is awesome which is always awesome um i that was kind of funny the the scene where franco and and uh lena were on the bed like and he's trying to rough her up to get the information and it's kind of funny like watching knowing that they're together
0: you yeah know? like i was telling eric like in slaves there's like a scene where he tries to like torture her and tries to get information out of her and it's funny it's almost like they're doing role playing on film where he's like Fake slapping her and kind of shaking her and and she you know she's either getting off on it or giggling or whatever you know and and uh, it's just cool to see those two working that together like that
2: as much as much like bondage that has been in his film so far that I've seen um, like the whipping the women in chains and you know the 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 lust and yeah. all of that I just I can't even imagine what their sex life was yeah you know, that's, like that's it, a
0: book that probably should have came out that never did <laughs> like I mean I mean how they how
2: they celebrate the making of the sixty ninth film
0: yeah exactly <laughs> well in this I was reading it says Franco on screen Franco plays a violent gangster working for a rival crime outfit a role similar to the one he plays in Midnight Party and the Slaves. Um, They remarked, which actually we didn't remark, so that's good. Uh, They they remarked on the music. Um, I noticed that there's like a a version of "Ode to Joy" um, that's done in here, and then also. um, uh, uh, Dean Martin, yeah, Dean Martin. uh, Everybody loves somebody sometime. There's a version of that done with saxophone, but in the film book here it says, uh, uh, "In Flowers of Perversion," it says, "If only the film itself were as hectic and hilarious as." Daniel White's title music which is based around a maniac piano set to a frantic drum machine two-step decorated with fussy trills and arpeggios brimming with tacky lunacy it's like a teenage Richard Clayderman trying to impress us with his fancy piano skills after a big line of coke it can be found on the Daniel J. White library record Mood Music Selections Number no. 1 Cocktail under the title Noria Vivants. also from the same LP and heard here for the first time is Introspection Number no. 1 a track that Franco would later use as the title theme for his creepy 1983 horror film, Mil Sexo, Tine La Noche. Another piece for cello, electronic piano, and ARP Selena employs a melody line that's an ironic kissing cousin to Box, Jesus, Joey of Man's Desire, which was, I, that's how I mentioned to Joy. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, connections, which we had said... The, the voiceover musings from cricket insurance investigator Milton Ward links this to classic Hollywood film Noir, as does Romay's double crossing film fatale. Um, in the introduction I talked about uh, other connections and other versions and that, but uh you already heard all that. So so yeah, um this one is uh Women Behind Bars, the sixty film Franco did. Um I'd say it's it's okay. It's not it's not shit. Um, I'm sure I'm going to see worse Franco films coming up. Exciting. I'm not worried about that. I'm going to see a lot better Franco films too. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's, I don't know, um, wasted potential, but knowing the history behind it and how they did it and what it is, I understand it for what it is.
2: Yeah, that's the, I think the story behind it is like what's really interesting.
0: Yeah, how, you know, just, you know, knowing as an independent filmmaker and doing things as like a, a side hustle or a side gig or everything behind it, I think that's, you know watching watching things in perspective always changes your viewing instead of going into it blind or or expecting something when it's not so you know if you know the history behind things sometimes it's funner to learn those things and, and watch any any movie from you know um et to heaven's gate to uh, you know uh twilight zone the movie or you know anything yeah. that has a controversy or has a history or a story behind it it's always good to know the rumors or the you know, curses of the films or anything like that. So,
2: yeah, it's kind of interesting too, like uh, how he, uh, so the the, mate, the guy that the jewel thief, or the diamond thief who she shoots, her boyfriend who she shoots, he comes back up later in the film as a guard, but it's, uh, they could always hide his face. Like, either he was turned away or he held a gun up and the gun was like blocking his face from the camera, so you couldn't quite see him.
0: But he actually didn't die because when he's shot by Lena, you never see the gun Lena's holding, remember? That's true. <laughs> That's true. Like, yeah, there's like two people killed in this in this, in this this film where you hear the gun sound, but you never see the gun in the hand or pulled up or out of shot or nothing. You just have to take the assumption that they're holding a gun and have faith yeah. in it, even though, you know.
2: Yeah, she was just standing there looking at him, and all of a you hear a beam
1: Yeah. And like, yeah.
0: And it's I, like the Italian stock gun sound, the kind of Chi! a shot you know yeah and it's funny too because uh I'm glad we brought this up there's like quite a few scenes where people are shooting inside uh, the club outside by a car uh and two or three other places where they're shooting and it's always the same stock sound effect of the gun firing no changes of indoor outdoor no pitch change it doesn't matter the model of the gun or the make it's always the same <laughs> stock sound so
2: there's also got interesting too like when she was at uh, seducing the warden and um, she's wearing this, like, flowy dress that's just open. There's, like, no pockets on it. There's, like, she's not wearing anything under it. Um, and then like, she's, like, she sticks out her tongue and starts wagging it. And, like, she starts kissing him. All of a sudden, she pulls this gun out. What's that? And, and where did it come from? Like, he was wearing a bathrobe, you know? Like, he didn't have a gun on him. Yeah, yet.
0: yeah. There's a lot of leaps, leaps of faith in this. Yeah. <laughs> also, too, we noticed, uh, Eric, there's a scene where um, it's, it's – Right when you always think you're going to wrap up, you always say, oh, yeah, this idea. that idea." Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Lena's walking away, and you see this giant bruise on her ass, and Eric goes, man, look at the bruise on her ass. And then I just figured this was filmed, like, right after barbed wire dolls, like, within a, maybe a week or two of that wrapping, or during the same time in a few weeks, maybe, because they grabbed a few shots from the same locations. Anyway, she's walking away, and you see the big bruise on her ass. I said, oh, that's probably from the stunt of her repelling down the wall, hitting her ass on the trees, branches, limbs, going down. And hitting like that and going through because watching the different shots she was in, that was the one that would probably have the most impact with her body.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Like, she, she fell hard. Like, when she came down that rope, she came really hard through the trees. Yeah, like, yeah. And that bruise was black. Like, she, yeah, she messed her butt up.
0: So it's kind of cool watching that and learning those and watching these back-to-back like that because it's almost like you're – in on the crew or you know the story it's like oh yeah she has the bruise because she got it from the film she did before where she hits the tree and you're like oh yeah and it just all goes together so I thought that was kind of cool and one thing that you get out of watching um, if you do watch all his films in a row that's kind of cool Um, I'm doing that with these first three or four and we're going to kind of do that but with this project when we have other reviewers we jump around a little bit and such so it's kind of fun to watch groupings of the films because you see the same lot of actors or the same producers on the same locations or or motifs or locations like the ones we watched later on with the Dietrich ones, always share the um white sheepskin rug and the, the red cat the red bed and a few of those things and these earlier ones don't have those yet so you know. So we're not in that territory yet. Yeah. But Yeah. But we will get to that when we get to Girls in the Night Traffic and uh Mondo Tra- and uh Mondo Erotico and a few of those <laughs> other ones around the world in eighty beds. So yeah, those those have the white sheepskin rug. I'm sure. So so fans of the white sheepskin rug get ready because uh, in about a month or two you'll be uh, get, that's getting the big push. So you'll be hearing about that again and maybe going out and looking on Amazon to see how much the white sheepskin rugs are. I might even look myself to see maybe you know start bringing that back again. Yeah, you know they're always cool. You know so. All righty. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap up this episode of the Franco Observer. Uh, thank you all for listening. We're now in 17 countries and like 67 cities. So that's pretty amazing. You know, that's awesome. got a lot of fans around the world. So keep listening. We'll keep doing these weekly podcasts. The only place in the world that you can hear a weekly Just Franco film podcast. So uh, I figured I'd do it because nobody else was doing it. And it's pretty cool. And We're keeping it going and it's it's fun. So thank you all for doing that. Numbers look good. A lot of downloads everybody's digging it so getting people join our pages and facebook page and instagram page and the uh, red circle page and all that so keep it up franco at yahoo.com so thanks again uh my name is jason rudy and uh my co-host eric whitwell yeah, beautiful nights a beautiful nights have a good night